I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Practicing the Way, the Gospel. If you spend any time around the church or Christian culture, you've likely heard what is often called the gospel, depicted as one thing and not another. What is the good news? Is it evangelical or reformed? Is it about prosperity or politics? How do we unearth the beautiful subversiveness of the kingdom of God amidst so many variations on the same story? In Williamstown, Kentucky, sits a multi-million dollar theme park called the Ark Encounter. I looked it up today for about 80 bucks, give or take. You can step inside a lavish recreation of how at least a few people imagine Noah's Ark was on the inside. But the Ark Encounter wasn't created out of an obsession with this tiny story in three chapters of Genesis. It was built with the express purpose of advocating and furthering what is called a young earth creationist view. This is the idea that when our English translations of Genesis describe the creation of the universe in six days, the author of Genesis truly meant six literal 24-hour days according to the way that we understand them now. By this logic, the earth is some 6,000 years old, give or take, and any scientific, geological, or paleontological arguments to the contrary are pagan efforts to discredit God and dismantle the Bible. So, when you step into this ark, something that I would very much like to do, by the way, you learn that the wickedness of the world prior to the flood included triceratops poachers. This is a real piece of art amazing. That is so cool. Look at, he's like spattered with the blood of a triceratops. Incredible. You also learn that the pre-flood evil of the ancient world, including pitting, pitting helpless victims in gladiator arenas against giants over here on the left, and yes, bloodthirsty theropods like the Carnotaurus. Look at that. That is so cool. I want to see this movie. So bad. And you wonder, why did someone dedicate so much time and so much money and so much energy to this particular effort, aside from the obvious reason of its awesomeness? Well, there's actually a sign in the ark to explain it. If the devil says, that's the devil, by the way, around the sign there, If I can convince you that the flood was not real, then I can convince you that heaven and hell are not real. If the flood story didn't include dinosaur poachers and giant battle royales, why believe in heaven or hell? Which seems like a jump to me, but what do I know? Ken Ham, the infamous personality behind the Ark Encounter, argued this. By giving them a foundation in God's Word, or the Bible, beginning with the very first pages of Scripture, we can equip our children to stand against the Genesis 3 attacks of our day. I think the debate clearly highlighted the importance of presenting biblical creation as a way of removing roadblocks, listen, to the gospel for the next generation. Which begs the question, are triceratops poachers and human sacrifices to dinosaurs about the gospel? Really? That's the good news of the kingdom of God. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. 
We are three weeks into a series instead of practices around something fundamental to Christianity and yet often misunderstood, widely avoided, and hopelessly divisive in the church, and that is sharing the gospel. Even saying the phrase, sharing the gospel, draws many of our minds to decades of bad practices and the evils of history, everything from colonialism and manifest destiny all the way to weird door-to-door evangelism and youth camp hysterics. The thing is, I would argue that all of that grows from widespread misunderstanding about what the gospel is in the first place. And that's a huge problem given that the marching orders from Jesus and all four gospels at the conclusion were to go and preach the gospel, make disciples, teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Theologian Dallas Willard argued that we must do nothing less than engage in a radical rethinking of the Christian concept of salvation. Now, in context, Willard was arguing for a rethinking of the modern evangelical reduction of the gospel into basically say a prayer go to heaven when you die, which he argues had drifted considerably from the historic, orthodox, and far more robust paradigm of the scriptures and of the early church. Now, two weeks ago, I argued this in detail. If you weren't here, please go back, catch up on the podcast. Tonight, we are going to move deeper into clarifying what is and what is not the gospel by contrasting what we find in the New Testament with what often passes for the good news of salvation in the modern world. Or, what does it mean to be saved? Does it mean avoiding hell? Is it about going to heaven? Is it about escaping God's wrath? Is it about being justified before God? Is it about one thing and not the other thing? Or is it all of those things? How you define salvation determines how you define the gospel. How is one saved? What does it mean to be saved? What happens to the unsaved? And how is all of that information shared from disciples of Jesus to the lost or people who do not know Jesus? And is it good news? The thing is, I believe that there are elements of truth in what I've argued are modern misconceptions about the gospel and salvation. The problem is that the true gospel um, is so much bigger, so much wider, so much more robust. So these other misconceptions, true though they may be in part, don't capture the New Testament meaning of the good news. Theologian and scholar N.T. Wright claimed, I am perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say the gospel. I just don't think it is what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying the usual meanings are things that people ought to say and preach about and believe. I simply wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. Now, what I'm getting at is that if the gospel is how we are saved, then it probably matters that we understand it well. And who better to define the gospel than Jesus himself? But if we go to Jesus for our gospel paradigm, we will, I think, be consistently surprised by what we find. So let's read from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, beginning with verse 6. The story goes, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? 
There you have it. This dude is doing the work for us. He is asking Jesus point blank the salvation question. And his question is about something called eternal life. Now, most of us have something specific in mind when we think about an idea like eternal life. If you grew up in the church or if you've made the rounds in Christian culture, maybe what comes to mind is the concept of dying and then going to a place called heaven where you live forever, eternal life. But that, I would argue, is not what has this guy curious N.T. Wright says it this way, the guy in the story wasn't simply asking about how to go to heaven after he died. The phrase kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that. It means God's saving rule coming to bring the whole creation into a new state of being, a new life in which evil, decay, and death itself will be done away. Many, perhaps most Jews of Jesus' day believed that Israel's God would do this and would do it very soon. The question they were asking in several different ways was who would benefit from it when it happened, who would gain eternal life? So look at it this way. This dude isn't asking about a trip to heaven for his ghost. He's a Jewish dude who shares a commonly held Jewish expectation, and he's heard tell of this fellow called Jesus. Now, here's a guy, he says to himself, that might have an in on the whole kingdom of God thing. I'm going to go and ask. He wants to be on the inside of God's in-breaking rule. Now, if we know Jesus, and I think we do, He should say something like this, what good thing must you do to get eternal life? You don't have to do anything. That would be earning your salvation. That would be a works-based salvation. Salvation is a gift, justification by faith through grace. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, repeat this prayer after me. The rich man says the prayer and he gets to go to heaven when he dies. That's what Jesus should say if he's a Christian. So let's fact check, shall we? Verse, this is a joke, by the way. Are you guys all right? I've been gone a couple times. Everybody forgot the way I make jokes, Levi. Can you laugh really loud so that... <laughs> wow, okay. Apparently, Levi is the funniest person that ever lived. This is a message that I got while I was gone, by the way. I sent the, uh, hey, how's it going? Is everything okay? And Cam's like, yeah, apparently, Levi is the funniest person that ever lived because he gave announcements and there was like standing ovation and fireworks going off. I missed it, so now there's a lot of pressure. Not only did everybody laugh, I talked about it. There was messages flying back and forth. And then I'm standing with Levi out there in the hallway or breeze, I don't know, whatever you call it, and people are coming in and say, oh, my God, Levi, oh, my gosh, those announcements. <laughs> still, still slapping their legs over it. So I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> that's, be- that's better. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so... Verse 17, Jesus should say, here's what you do, nothing, just say the prayer and you're good. Let's see what happens. Verse 17, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So (laughs) the answer starts weird and then it gets weirder. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Notice Jesus has revised the man's verb. The man asked, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus tells him how to enter life. In other words, the man wants a transaction. Sound familiar? Today, many think the same way. Say a prayer, invite Jesus into your heart, nice and tidy, done. It's a transaction. One scholar I read said that Jesus transfers the man from a market to a road. And interestingly, Jesus' proposed method of entering life is to keep the commandments. Then look at verse 18. Which ones? The man inquired, which is a fair question. Jesus replied, 
Don't murder, don't commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus cites a handful of the Ten Commandments, six, seven, eight, nine, and five, if you're counting. And interestingly, the commandments that Jesus highlights are the commandments that address human relationships rather than divine relationships. Why is he emphasizing the treatment of other people to this guy? Let's find out. Verse 20, all these I've kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? I did all that, he tells Jesus. That can't be it. What else? What do I still lack? What's missing? And look, Jesus doesn't disagree with him. Look down at verse 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, or you can read that complete, mature, whole, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. What the heck is up with this story? What are you doing, Jesus? He sounds heretical. He's getting into dangerous territory here. Jesus needs to hear, I think, from some of our pastors. He needs to read some of our theologians before he goes around confusing people with his bananas theology. Somebody comes up and just asks him point blank, what am I supposed to do to be saved? And he's like, keep the commandments. Oh, I already did those. What else? You're right. You didn't do them right. So here's what you need to do. Sell everything and then come follow me. Who would ever answer the question, how do I be saved this way? Now, all kidding aside, remember the guy asked Jesus about eternal life. We hear that and we think living forever in heaven, but that is not how he nor Jesus understood the idea. Don't believe me, Jesus puts it himself this way. This is eternal life. Can't be much clearer than that. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus the Messiah whom you have sent. Again, what the heck, Jesus, this is eternal life. Why doesn't he say anything about heaven? Now, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Not knowing about God and not knowing God as one God among many, but knowing the only true God intimately, relationally, in and through Jesus, his son. John Ortberg puts it this way, to know God is to live in a moment-by-moment, gratitude-soaked, participatory life together. Does that sound familiar? That's what we were getting at all summer long in our journey through Colossians. But that definition does not sound like the one I was given growing up in the church. And it's interesting to me that in the text we've just read, these terms are all interchangeable. Look, the rich man asks about eternal life in verse 16. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Even though the man asked about eternal life, now Jesus is on about the kingdom of God. And then when the disciples ask him about it, they ask Jesus, well, then who can be saved? Eternal life, kingdom of God, salvation. Three different ways of describing the exact same idea. Tim Keller calls it one gospel, many forms. But for those of you who have spent some time in the New Testament, you know each of those three ideas, eternal life, kingdom of God, salvation, they're all dense, complex, multi-layered concepts. Meaning, if you're wondering why Jesus answers the rich dude's question about eternal life this particular way, the answer is this. The gospel is complex, and it can be contextualized to different people in different times and different places. Note, it cannot be changed it cannot be compromised. It cannot be watered down or censored or sanitized to accommodate fragile, evolving sensibilities. But 
There is room for Jesus, for John, for Paul, for you and me to embrace the complexity of the gospel without ironing it out into a flat, one-dimensional, one-size-fits-all transaction for the lowest common denominator. But let's be real. Any way you slice it, Jesus' answer to the rich man about eternal life sounds nothing like, say a prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, go to heaven when you die. And if you keep reading the New Testament, the deeper you wade into the complexities of the kingdom, salvation, the gospel, you'll never find, ask Jesus into your heart, go to heaven when you die as a salvation formula. And that means that maybe, just maybe, the good news of the kingdom of God, salvation, eternal life could be something other than what's been coming at us from American church culture for the last few decades. So with the rest of our time in the scriptures, me teaching, if you'll let me, I want to unpack what I think are some of the pervasive misconceptions about this thing we call the gospel. Before I get into it, a couple of disclaimers. First, it's going to sound more luxury than our ordinary Bible teachings, but this is, I think, important work for us in making our way into this series and practice. Um, we're part of a team with Bridgetown Church, the church that planted us, and we get together and we plan out these series and practices, and we talk about what should we do, what should we say, what should each teaching be, and we thought that this was important, these particular misconceptions and confronting them head on. So it's going to sound kind of luxury, but I think that it matters going forward. And two, my intention really isn't to nitpick and critique and correct everyone else. This is not, you know, oh, beware this pastor, beware this church. This is not an expose of other churches and traditions that get it all wrong. There's lots of stuff like that out there in the church. The whole, everyone is wrong except me, and it, it proliferates in church culture. We don't want anything to do with it. I've been on the receiving end of the whole beware this guy thing many times. It's gross, it's petty, it's lame. And I don't have it all figured out. Van City does not have the definitive final word on theology. I am, we are, fallible, imperfect. You know this already. The reason I'm willing to dedicate the bulk of this teaching to misconceptions about the gospel is because we want to follow Jesus well. Remember that quote from Ortberg, to know God is to live in a moment-by-moment gratitude-soaked participatory life together. Just as Jesus said, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Not knowing about God and not knowing God is one God among many, but knowing in deep, intimate relationship with the only true God in and through His Son, Jesus. That is what we are after. Not us versus them, not a monopoly on correct theology, but knowing God. You and I have the unfortunate predicament of a Christian culture cluttered with misunderstandings about the gospel. And that's not a secret. That's not something that I figured out on my own. That's not, you know, Van City's unique observation. As I said, week one, if I asked 10 of you on the spot, what is the gospel? My guess is that we would get 10 at least slightly very different answers. And that's telling. The good news of King Jesus is, I don't have to tell you, central to discipleship. If we don't understand it, that confusion stands to stunt our growth into spiritual maturity and to prevent us from obeying one of the great commands of Jesus to actually share the gospel. So we're not calling anyone out. We're calling one another into deeper faithfulness. Okay, you guys still with me? Great, thank you. 
Here's what we're unpacking. The evangelical gospel, the reformed gospel, the prosperity gospel, and the social gospel. First, the evangelical gospel. A couple of weeks ago, I described it as one of my professors always did as the John 3.16 gospel. It goes something like this. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. Now, this gospel is typically preceded by something called the sinner's prayer, a sort of repeat-after-me incantation to ask Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. From what we can tell, this gospel rose to prominence after World War II in an effort to sort of simplify the admittedly complex theology of salvation. And yes, I've obviously spoken cynically about this formula, and it isn't um, that, you know, one, it isn't in the New Testament, so it's easy to pick on and that it, in effect, makes a fast food transaction out of the gospel. But I do believe that the evangelical gospel has been wielded all over the world with the deeply sincere desire to see people come to faith in Jesus. Not always, but I believe it has been. And let's be honest about one thing. The generation that popularized the evangelical gospel was far more serious about Jesus' command to preach the good news than the ones that came after it. I grew up with this formula. I preached this gospel as a young Christian, as a teenager in my early 20s. This is how I would tell my friends about Jesus and ask them to come to faith. And the big problem with this version of the gospel isn't necessarily that it's overtly heretical or it's like 100% wrong. It's that it falls egregiously short of the full picture. The evangelical gospel puts all its eggs in the basket of something that happens later, And it's true that there is a future for disciples of Jesus, the resurrection, the age to come, the renewal of all things, but the gospel is just as concerned about the here and now. A friend of mine puts it like this, it's not about getting you into heaven, but about getting heaven into you. It's not about a transaction, but about transformation. And the shortcomings of the formula aren't exactly a secret. The evangelical gospel, I think, created the Western phenomenon of people who identify as Christians, but who do not actually follow Jesus. Why transform your heart and your mind and your life? Why pay the cost of discipleship? Why give up everything to walk the lifelong narrow road? I said a prayer, I'm covered, see you in heaven. Again, from Ortberg, in this way of thinking about salvation, the goal is to get from down here to up there about how to know for sure that you're heading to the good place. It usually involves praying a very specific prayer, believing a set of doctrines about God, and other things that make someone a Christian. Ironically, it does not necessarily involve a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. It's a bit like marriage in legal concept only. If Abby and I, my wife Abby, if we were legally married but had no meaningful relationship, if we didn't live together, we didn't know each other, if we weren't in each other's lives, if there was no intimacy or shared relationship or life, and if someone were to ask me, are you living into all the beauty and challenges of being joined to someone at a deep soul level, only to have me answer, well, we're technically married. I have a paper that says so then that person would be in their rights to say, that's not marriage. Now, the second perversion of the gospel is the Reformed gospel. It goes like this. God is a perfect, holy, just God of both love and wrath. You are morally guilty before him. God's demands must be kept. You can't possibly do it, but Jesus did it 
for you. Now, bear with me for the next couple of minutes, those of you who aren't theology nerds. I think this is actually kind of important. Reformed theology, or Calvinism, is a theological system that, like all theological systems, organizes its understanding of God and the Bible according to the doctrines of the system. So, what the Reformed gospel does, in effect, is to equate the gospel itself with a few of its core doctrines, something called penal substitutionary atonement, another thing called imputed righteousness, and something called justification specifically. That's the clincher. Albert Moeller Jr., who's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said this, justification by faith alone is not one doctrine among others. It is not merely one way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel. John Piper, who's arguably the most outspoken face of modern Calvinism, also argued, I am thrilled to call justification the heart of the gospel. Now, in super simplistic terms, this is the basic definition of the Reformed understanding of justification. Jesus was righteous because he lived a sinless life. You, on the other hand, are utterly and totally depraved. There's nothing good about you whatsoever. But in God's legal courtroom, so to speak, Jesus transferred his righteousness over to you, his merit earned through sinlessness, so that rather than being condemned by God the judge, we are justified before him by the merit and righteousness imputed to us by Jesus. And all of that is, of course, by sheer grace. Now, justification, that idea that I just described, it is a New Testament concept. It's mentioned once by Jesus in all four Gospels. It's in the, kind of the story of the Pharisee and the publican. It shows up in Galatians and Romans, once in Philippians, once in 1 Corinthians, and then not at all in the rest of Paul's nine or ten letters, nor at all in any of the other New Testament writings, which is kind of weird if it's true that justification is not just an aspect of the gospel, but it is the gospel itself. And depending on your experience of the church, the tradition in which you were raised, you might be aware of the hyper-exaggerated, hyperbolic, corrupt mutations of the Reformed gospel that present the concept of justification even more aggressively. Things like God is so angry and so tough, because these are usually pretty masculine, macho things. God is so angry and so tough. He's so awesome. And you are so loathsome and despicable. But God was in a good mood one day, so he killed his son Jesus instead of you. So you better get in line and be afraid because he's full of wrath and judgment. And he's ready to send anyone to hell at you know, the blink of an eye. And I have obviously no problem calling this out for what it is. Remember, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel, good news, is that it's good news, not bad news. And it's about more than what God has done in human history. It is about who God is and who God has always been. And yes, in the scriptures, God does get angry. No, God is not passive or enabling. He cares about injustice and evil and sin, but God is not an angry, wrathful tyrant whose baseline disposition is to destroy evildoers. God, in the scriptures, is a good and loving father. Now, you dads in the room, on your very best day, is your innate identity and disposition anger and vengeance against your children's disobedience. No, on your best day, you care about disobedience, and you care enough about your children to discipline well, 
but you are loving and gracious and patient and kind and understanding and full of warmth and affection and delight in your children, whether they are at their best or decidedly less so. That's human fathers on their best day. You are not a better dad than God. So, like the evangelical gospel, it's not that the Reformed gospel's idea of justification is entirely wrong. It's that it's too narrow a picture and that, I would argue, the emphasis is misplaced. Here's a quote from Daryl Bach. He's not some kind of kooky, progressive, semi-spiritual blogger. He is a New Testament scholar from a conservative seminary, and he argued, most gospel presentations I hear focus often exclusively on the cross. The gospel is set forth primarily, if not exclusively, as a transaction to be experienced in a moment in time, whether a prayer, justification, whatever. To believe or to exercise faith is to trigger the transaction and fulfill the gospel. Now, what makes this tricky is that there is a transaction that is a part of the gospel and that allows us to experience God's good news. However, there is more to this gospel. So again, it's not all bad. One wonderful aspect of the Reformed gospel is that it does emphasize the supremacy of Jesus and his work on the cross. And also, I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm about as non-reformed as a person can get, but the Reformed gospel actually has a paradigm for human evil, moral guilt, and the need for things, these things to be resolved. In the world of modern, progressive, faux Christian spirituality, concepts like these are blasphemous. Not only, like, not only that, but the Reformed gospel isn't afraid to grapple with the reality that God does get angry with evil and injustice which is a reality evident from cover to cover of the scriptures. God is not okay with everyone doing whatever they want, just as long as they're kind. And he actually loves us enough to dislike evil and get upset about it. Even so, the Reformed gospel, like the evangelical one, I would argue is deeply problematic. And again, one of the primary issues is that you simply cannot find it in the teachings of Jesus. Not only that, but for all the Reformed tradition's extreme aversion to what they call good works, Jesus seemed to think that good works were just that, good. That they may, this is Jesus' quote, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus' manifesto, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it ends with Jesus talking about whoever hears these words and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man. Whoever hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. He does not say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but you know what? Having said all that, don't worry about. I will do everything and I will impute my righteousness to you because you can't do any of this anyway. If the gospel isn't about you doing anything, how in the world do we apprentice Jesus? Dallas Willard famously argues that grace isn't opposed to doing, it's opposed to earning. It truncates the gospel, again, into a passive transaction after which there is no apprenticeship. Next comes the prosperity gospel. It's sort of an offshoot of Pentecostalism in which a strong emphasis is placed on physical health, financial affluence as the will and blessing of God. And the way to get both is to have faith, 
donate a lot of money and speak good stuff into existence. Here's the popular abbreviation. You are a child of God. God is for you. You are royalty. Through his resurrection, he has won the victory, and his victory is your inheritance. Victory over sickness, victory over poverty, and victory over failure. The best is yet to come. Kate Baller is the leading scholar in the world on the prosperity gospel, and she argues for four markers of the prosperity gospel, faith, health, wealth, and victory. And she differentiates between hard prosperity and soft prosperity. I know it sounds like a lot of technical jargon, but I actually found this helpful. Hard prosperity is the old school obviously heretical snake oil scam artist out, you know, claiming that if you send X amount of dollars right now, God will send you five times as much. Call this number. And it was always a fringe movement because it was so obviously scammy. And it took a big hit with the scandals of televangelists like Jim Baker, those of you who are alive enough to remember all that. Um, that's mostly gone. Uh, it, or if it's still around, it's even more fringe than it once was. But in its place grew something called soft prosperity. It's not as obviously heretical because, frankly, it tends to lack any theological substance at all. It's usually about self-help, feeling good, success, that sort of thing. A huge chunk of celebrity pastors are in this movement, and with them, a huge chunk of, you know, what's arguably a tiny amount of Hollywood Christians. They gather together in gigantic hip megachurches with pastors who pose with pop stars on Instagram. Now, Obviously, based on the snarky little things I just said, I think it's easy to pick on. But again, it's not all bad. These guys emphasize the love of God. Can't go wrong there. The goodness of God, the favor of God. They argue for miracles and radical faith. And these are beautiful, deeply biblical concepts, often sorely missing from other expressions of the church. But, again, it's not the gospel Jesus preached, and it is very much not the gospel Jesus lived as a poor, peasant, itinerant rabbi who suffered and was executed by the state. If what you mean by the best is yet to come is growing into a person of radical, self-sacrificial love and union with God, well then, yes, the best is yet to come. But what if, you, if what you mean by the best is yet to come is financial prosperity or health, wealth, success, you are not going to like the New Testament or church history or what happened to all of the apostles and many of the early Christians throughout the Jesus movement. Not only is the emphasis on money and material success antithetical to the way of Jesus, it likely cripples any possibility of authentic discipleship when the promised affluence doesn't ever come to more than half the people waiting for God to pay out. In it, there's no paradigm for suffering, which is inherent to human existence, no, no paradigm for evil and death, all of things with which Jesus was well accustomed. Now, we're almost done. Final, the, the final uh, gospel on the list, the social or liberation gospel, which is easily the most popular in our context, our time and our place. The social gospel understands human history as a power struggle between those who have more of it, power that is, and those who have little or none. It's a power struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor. 
It reduces all human relationships to power dynamics. It goes something like this. Jesus was a political revolutionary. He came to liberate the poor and oppressed from the powerful and the oppressor. He was killed as an enemy of the state. America is the empire. Jesus stands against it. And with the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, people of color, the LGBTQ community, and so on. And the church then is to be a beacon of political activism steering culture toward progressivism. Now, as with all of the Gospels that we've discussed so far, there are some good things here. Finally, a paradigm for the kingdom of God, an emphasis on the here and now, not just the age to come. The social gospel emphasizes not just individual sin, but the sin of institutions and the empire, which are crucial ideas in Scripture and often missing from other expressions of the church and the gospel. But unlike other expressions of the gospel, the social gospel calls out things like racism, sexism, police brutality, military violence. And again, there are huge issues here as well. First, as far as I can tell personally, the social gospel usually doesn't really care a ton about Bible or theology. They love to tweet things about Jesus being a brown refugee, which is true, or they repost pictures of protest signs that say things like, there are no white people in the Bible, which is maybe kind of true, but it's complicated. But my guess is that if you were to engage the legions of Instagram zombies posting this kind of stuff, they wouldn't really be able to explain why they think either thing is true from a biblical perspective. So, so why argue biblical ideology if you don't really care about the Bible? Well, to win political arguments and shame your political opponents on social media, of course. The social gospel localizes its battle against the powers that be entirely in the political realm, which is something that neither Jesus nor the disciples nor the early church ever did. We talked about this at length in our Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not series, if you want to go back and do a refresher or if you missed it. But in Jesus' time of political oppression and civil unrest, he consistently refused to engage in political activism or with political systems. Not only that, but for all Jesus' opposition to empire and oppression, any objective reading of Jesus' teaching is a million miles from the ethics of modern progressivism. Jesus' teaching on sexuality, gender, identity, self-denial. I mean, he was a celibate Jewish rabbi in the first century. To call his teaching ethically conservative would be an understatement. Jesus would be instantly canceled by the progressive outrage mob. He often is. To say nothing of the fact that the gospel of progressive utopia is hilariously inept. Earlier this week, I went to a late movie with a friend of mine, and before it started, we took a walk around downtown Portland. And this friend of mine, he's been a pastor for a very long time, he's traveled all over the world, worked with all kinds of different people from all kinds of different churches and traditions. And as we walked and we looked at, you know, the boarded up stores and stepped over the human excrement and around the camps and looked up at the Alcatraz-like gates that surround the Apple store, my friend said to me, the best argument against progressivism is progressive people and progressive cities. Because progressivism promises utopia and delivers anything but. It promises enlightenment, free from the petty hatefulness of its political opponents, and yet produces a people every bit as angry and hateful and paranoid as the other side of the political aisle. So, to end, here's what I'm getting at with all this. The luxury part is over. I know a lot of you... And I know that many of you grew up with either the evangelical or the reformed gospels. 
And many of you, I also know, were hurt or disillusioned by them. And reacting, you migrated to either soft prosperity or the social gospel. Maybe for you, God was once the simple grantor of tickets to heaven, handed out at youth retreats, usually. Or maybe he was the angry judge ready to destroy you before Jesus jumped in the way, imputed his goodness over to you, and now you're good. But you better watch it because God is not to be messed with. And another version of the gospel seemed more appealing, one as different from the one your parents and pastors gave you as possible. Maybe God just wanted you to be happy and successful and pat you on the back, and he was okay with everything you did and only wanted the same good things for you that you wanted for yourself. Or maybe God was really just as mad about the politics of your conservative upbringing as you were, and you were really going to stick it to them, your mom, your dad, your youth pastor, not just by saying cuss words, but by flying pride flags and posting Instagram stories and bringing God into it with you. That'll, that'll really show them. I got a letter this week from someone sincerely curious how I had survived my upbringing in you know, deeply conservative, fundamentalist, southeast Georgia uh, with my faith intact. And he listed a few reasons that he believed my worldview was untenable. Practical, logical stuff, good questions, good thoughts. But then he kind of showed his cards when he wrote, and this is a quote, the teachings of the Bible, the church, and my upbringing have seriously traumatized me. Now, I do not doubt that this gentleman did have sincere trauma from his religious upbringing. I, I tend to think all of us do, at least in some sense. And obviously, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that reacting to trauma is exactly what swings the proverbial pendulum from one distortion of the gospel to a new one or to no gospel at all. It's not necessarily intellectual questions and doubts, though those are also very important and totally worthwhile. I think it is primarily trauma, which is why our heart for this series and this practice isn't getting everyone out the door with pamphlets to convert your neighbors but to allow a concept at the heart of the Jesus movement to recapture our hearts and imaginations, even in the wake of so many religious and cultural misconceptions about the gospel. The practice for this week is up at vancity.church gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we invited you, you guys that are in Van City communities, to pick one of the four gospels and spend the next few days or weeks reading through it cover to cover. The gospel according to, you fill in the blank, and ask God as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to open your heart to relearn and recapture a vision for the whole gospel of Jesus. My heart with a teaching like this one is not to make fun it's not to point out how wrong everyone else is and how right we are. In the end, I kind of agree, at least on one little point, with Ken Ham, the creator of the Ark Experience, the wacky founder of the museum in Kentucky. What we think about the gospel really matters. At Van City, we're constantly on about following Jesus every single week, following Jesus, apprenticing Jesus, discipleship, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, eventually doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. To do those things, we need to understand why the message of Jesus is good news. So my prayer for us 
as we continue this series and these practices, is that God would empower us by His Spirit through the reading of scriptures and through the prayers and accountability of this community to do exactly that. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to empower us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.